just be together. This is part four of our four-part series that you are going to be quizzed on tomorrow morning. So um, depending on how you know badly someone wants those prizes or whatever, or how much someone wants to learn, this is the fourth part, okay? Those of you who are watching online, uh, you can go ahead and like, share, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel also, and uh, you can play the game tomorrow even if you haven't been to any of the services, but you have to show up. We are not streaming the game, all right? So this is a four-question uh, series that we're working on here, and this is the last part. Uh, zero to Easter, and the idea is how do you go from no faith to belief in Jesus and belief in the resurrection of Jesus? Uh, does spiritual truth exist? Does, uh, does the theistic God exist? Are miracles possible? We've covered these things already. So, you know, it's fine when you get to a place where you say, okay, uh, I can see the point in that truth exists in matters of religion and matters of spirituality that seems to make sense. And I think we built a good case for that. And then it's then you go you can go even further and say, well, does the is there one personal creator God? Could that be possible? And I think we built a good case for that. Uh, you just look at just look at uh, creation, right? And we talked about three different lines of evidence you can use for that. Does any of you remember any of them? Little pre-quiz. Cosmological, that's the argument from cause. Where did it all come from? Next. The teleological, yeah, that's the argument from design. Look how nicely you're designed, you see? It's so nice. How did it get that way, right? We built $2 million robots that just copy a, a human hand, right? And then the last argument, you remember? That's an easy one, right? You remember the picture of Will Smith and Chris Rock? A picture that still lives on today, right? And so this argument for the existence of God. And then last week we talked about miracles. Are miracles possible? Even if you reject all the miracles in the Bible, you still have to deal with um, creation. You still have to deal with where did all of this come from? And you run into a problem because even if you're a strict adherent of the Big Bang, which is the, you know, the most popular, most respected theory around the world as far as where we came from, even if you hold to that theory, you still have to believe in a miracle. You have to believe that something came from nothing because we never see something come from nothing. So you still have to have faith. You're still technically having faith in a miracle even when you hold to that view. Well, let's just say all those things are true. Well, what about Jesus? What about the New Testament? Is, can we trust it? I mean, maybe we can get to a point where we can believe that there's a God who created. But is Jesus that God? And do we have reason to trust uh, what the Bible says and what the New Testament says? You say, wow, this sounds like it's going to be long. No, it isn't. I'm going to make it really, really simple for you. And for some, you say, well, I know all this already. I already believe in the Bible. I already believe in Jesus and all of these things. Well, let me speak to you for a moment, those of you who are people of faith in the room. What happens to you when you don't feel it anymore? What happens when you don't feel the witness of the Holy Spirit, the sense that God is with you? You don't feel God anymore. What happens when you feel like he's left you? Uh, there's someone on Good Friday who felt like God left him, and we'll get into that in a few moments. What about when you prayed and it didn't work? And you prayed again, and it didn't work, and it didn't work, and it didn't work, and 
Jesus in what way? Right, they don't accept that Jesus is God. This would be a kind of a supernatural thing. But what else? To repent and change? Yeah, why should I repent and change anyway? But what else? Tell me what you hear. If you ever told somebody that you believe the Bible, what did they say back to you? Pardon me? Okay, the teaching, the morals, yeah. But what are people, what's the problem with the New Testament that people have? How do we know it's true? But how do we know what is true? Because people don't have a problem with, you know, the city of Jerusalem. You can go to the city of Jerusalem. It doesn't, have, doesn't take any faith to believe that, that the New Testament is right when it says Jerusalem. You can go and visit Jerusalem. So what's the problem then? Exactly. The problem that people have when you shake it down to, to the real truth, the problem that people have is, come on, I'll give you, I'll give you Jerusalem, you know, I'll give you uh, the, the historical background that obviously these writers are setting this thing in. I mean, they make an obvious attempt to set a story up about God coming into the real world. And they said it in the real world. And it's obvious when you read it that whoever these people are who wrote this, this collection uh, that we call the New Testament, that's their intention. And so the modern, enlightened, skeptical mind will say, okay, I'll give you all of that. Like, that doesn't require any faith for me to believe that there was a Jerusalem or that there was, uh, uh, you know, these people that are mentioned, these customs, these places, these practices, this geography. So what? I can give you all of that, but I'm not giving you any of this other stuff. Don't tell me that your Jesus walked on water. Don't tell me that he healed the sick and the blind. Don't tell me that he cast out demons as if there were such thing. And don't tell me, please don't tell me, that he's God and that he rose from the dead. I will give you the rest of the stuff because the rest of the stuff requires no faith. But don't tell me that Jesus is a miracle worker and all these things that you read in the book of Acts and all these miracles and these things are actually true. Don't tell me that because I'm not going to believe that. And it's pretty obvious why that shouldn't be believed. You know, uh, you, you talk about some of these things and I could go on and on and on about this, but I am going to quiz you on it in the morning. And so I figure I might as well throw in some throw in some trivia that I can put on a quiz, you know. But I mean, time and time again, the whole Bible, but especially the New Testament, confirms all of these little these people, these places, these things, these customs. And for a while, people didn't even think that Pontius Pilate was a real person. Imagine. I mean, we have writings from ancient historians about Pontius Pilate. But for a while, people thought, oh, this is a fictitious guy. Until they found this big rock. Uh, you know, it's, well, it's not that big, but two feet by about three feet. And it's got Tiberius Caesar's name on it. It's got Pontius Pilate's name on it. It's called the Pilate Stone. They found that in the 60s. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous, uh, very appropriate for Good Friday, a very famous uh, piece of first, maybe early second century writings from a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. And uh, Tacitus uh, is... is uh, writing, he's like a, a historian, and he has a long uh, uh, 
um, book called The Annals of Tacitus, and he's writing about the fire in 64 that uh, Nero set to the city of Rome. By the way, if you have the stomach for it, uh, there is an excellent movie about this called uh, Paul, Apostle of Christ. I think it is still on Netflix, and it is outstanding but very difficult to watch because it shows the persecution that the first century believers went through, and it's actually quite well done, filled with with passages from the New Testament, very, very well done, but it takes... uh, takes uh, you, you, it's not the type of thing you eat with popcorn okay or watch with popcorn but anyway tacitus writing this is a famous famous quote um i was looking at an atheist website uh yesterday preparing for this and even even them you know they're saying look even us atheists have to acknowledge that at least jesus existed and at least he was crucified largely because of this quote from tacitus and he says uh in his in his writings there Uh, talking about the fire that Nero set to Rome in 64, and how he blamed Christians for it and had them persecuted. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Uh, It sounds just like the New Testament. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil. This is exactly what the book of Acts says. But even in Rome, you see the movement of the gospel from Judea all the way to Rome in the book of Acts, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And then he goes on and on and talks about the, what Nero did to these people and how he uh, punished them and you know, put them in the circus in front of uh, animals and to be killed and all of this. It's, it's quite something. And if you watch that movie... Uh, Paul, Apostle of Christ, you'll see that. So this is not debated anymore. People will give you this. And this is why I love Good Friday. Good Friday is my favorite day of the year. You say, why is Good Friday? I will tell you, hopefully you'll get that from the rest of this message. But it's my favorite day of the year, Good Friday. Um, The modern mind, it, it doesn't tend to doubt what requires little faith or no faith. So the person will say, okay, I'll give you Jesus and I'll give you his death. Okay. But his miracles and his resurrection, no way. And that's the way that the modern modern culture, especially in the West, will, will frame it. Uh, and they'll say, look, you know, like we, like we said before last week, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. What do you say when someone says that? When they say it's true for you, but it's not true for me. Three words. Is that true? When someone says it's true for you, but not true for me, say, well, is that true? Because if that's true, it can't be true. Because you're saying truth is relative, but you're saying it as an absolute truth. It's impossible. You can't say that. Again, think about it and you'll get it. So people, people they, they, they will give you these things. And this is why I love Good Friday. Because we can all relate to Good Friday. What's Good Friday about? It's about, it's about death. And people, you know, sometimes when people celebrate Good Friday, they, you know, they have to put a, a, a fa- kind of a sour face on, a contemplative face on, and wear black, 
And, you know, it's a very mournful kind of time, a very self-reflective time. And that's okay. I, I'm not saying that that's bad. But I love Good Friday. I love Good Friday because people relate to Good Friday because people relate to death. That's something that they're not really going to say, well, no, it's impossible that Jesus died. <laughs> You're not going to hear that. They may say it's impossible that Jesus rose from the dead. They may well say that. They may well say, well, it's impossible that Jesus did all these things that the New Testament says he did. But okay, I'll, I'll admit that Jesus died and that Jesus died even on a cross. I mean, after all, Tacitus says that, and Tacitus has no reason to, to, he's not a Christian at all. He's just reporting this information. He's got no reason at all to, to concoct anything. So, okay, I'll give you your Jesus, and I'll give you his death on the cross. That's why I love Good Friday, because we all relate to it regardless of our faith, regardless of what we may believe or may not believe. We all have no problem understanding that death is real because we all are going to go there we're all going to pass through the curtain of death one day we know people who already have we have loved ones who already have friends family and so on who already have guess what it's as sure as taxes right it's got a 100 percent you it doesn't require any faith to know that you are going to leave this world one day. doesn't require any faith at all. You can try and deny it. You can try and uh, defeat it, but you cannot. It's impossible for you. There's only one thing, if the New Testament is true, there's only one thing that can stop you from dying. What is it? It's the second coming of Jesus. That would be a pretty big deal. So that's the only thing that can stop it. So when it comes to the whole question of the New Testament, um, and when, it, when you look at Good Friday especially, when trying to, to, to figure out is the New Testament trustworthy, it really falls into place quite well. And this is why I love Good Friday. In the, at the end of the day, Again, making things simple and shaking it all down to brass tacks and cutting off the, the top froth of all of these arguments that people have. You really only have three alternatives. If you're, if you're, you're at the place where you say, you know, maybe you're rebuilding your faith. You're trying to encourage yourself in the Lord. Your faith has been wiped out. It's been crushed. It's been obliterated, and you're trying to rebuild it. Listen, if you've got Jesus and you've got the cross, you're halfway there. You're halfway to rebuilding it. If you're talking with someone and, you know, they're, they're a nun, they've got none as their faith system. Or maybe they're a done and they say, I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with religion. If they get Jesus on the cross, they're halfway there. Because the excuse then is, well, these miracles and all of these things and all this hocus pocus that you read about in the New Testament is just that it's hocus pocus. Okay, let's say it's hocus pocus. There's only three possibilities if it's hocus pocus. And I've got them on the screen there. And uh, it doesn't matter what question you're getting. It doesn't what, matter what angle it's coming from. It's going to fall into one of those three or all three at the same time. 
So the first one, if the miraculous accounts didn't happen, there's only three explanations you have for what you read about in the New Testament. This is people's problem. Well, here's only three explanations for you. Number one, you've got a transmission problem. So that means that, uh, and this is the most popular uh, excuse that people have. And they say, well, you know, you're talking about a 2,000-year-old piece of literature. New Testament is how many, actually a collection of little tiny books. How many books in the New Testament? 27. Good. Wow, that's good. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. Well, so 29, 27 plus 39 is what? 66. Well, it says six there. Well, that's a Christian joke. I wish, it was, I wish there were 77 books, but there's 66. Imagine if there were 666. Oh, boy. We would all be in trouble there. You know, we get the 5G going. and I'm sorry. So there, the transmission problem is what people say. And they say, look, your Jesus started out as a regular guy. He started out as, you know, maybe he was a terrific teacher. He was a rabbi. The people liked to follow him. He showed love to people. And so what, what you all did and what the church did, you know, in the second and third and the fourth century is you all cooked this up and you made Jesus into God and you added all of this stuff afterwards because that's what the church wants to do. The church wanted power and the church wanted to control everybody. And so they made Jesus into God, put in all these things. If you, if you found the originals, and we don't have any originals of the New Testament anywhere, we just have these old copies. I'll get into that in a minute. But if you found them, you'd see that Jesus is nothing like the Jesus that you see in your Bible's New Testament. And so it, it's like you take 20 people and you line them up in this room. Even if I took you and lined you up in the room, we started at one end of the room and, and we said, you know, Pastor Joe got a really bad haircut. And you, and you, soon I will look like, at least I have it. Okay, so. It's a joke. So, so he, Pastor Joe got a really bad haircut. And then he'd turn to the next person and say, Pastor Joe got a really bad haircut. he turn to the next person, next person. And at the end of the day, you get what? Pastor Joe's hair is ugly or whatever. Or Pastor Joe is bald, you know, is how it turns out. Or even worse, Pastor Joe died yesterday. You know, it'll start with the haircut and it'll end up with... And that's the excuse that people have. Say, come on, it's 2,000 years of transmission. These people copying this stuff by hand. Don't tell me that they didn't inject all of this hocus pocus into your Jesus. And there you go. There's the argument. Good night. Thank you very much. I'm still a nun. I'm still a done. My faith is still obliterated. Folks, that is the worst excuse of the three. It is the worst. It is the weakest. It's the most easy to refute. Because when we look at the New Testament, especially, Old Testament is more difficult to do this, but when we look at the New Testament especially, what we have is quite remarkable. We can show beyond the shadow of a doubt that the New Testament was being copied and transmitted while the people who originally experienced these things were alive. That's how fast this information was transmitted. That's how quickly it hit the press, so to speak. That's how quickly it became viral, so to speak. There's nothing in the ancient world of that time that compares to the transmission speed 
of the New Testament. It spread so fast that you could take all of the manuscripts that we have, and those are copies, little pieces and parts of the New Testament or whole books of the New Testament. You could take all of them that we have, and we have thousands of them. You could take all of them that we have, and you could throw them away in the garbage or burn them, and you could still rebuild the entire New Testament just from the preaching of the early church fathers. Late first century, second century, third century, you could rebuild the entire New Testament starting as early as 96. Just from the preaching of it, you don't even need any manuscripts of it. So you've got this content, this information, it's the same information that we have today because that's where we get it from. You could, this content has moved that quickly, that fast. As Tacitus said in his quote that we read, it spread from Judea to Rome that quickly. So the, what's what we sometimes call the chain of custody, uh, there's a cold case, a former a cold case homicide detective by the name of J. Warner Wallace who uses this term. And he says the chain of custody of the information of the New Testament is unbroken. So right from the original eyewitnesses all the way till now, it's the same information. It's really easy to demonstrate this. So you do not have time for any of this hocus pocus to be injected into the story. So as the story says, Jesus did such and such a miracle. That's what it said originally, the same thing. Sure, there are small questions about, well, does this word come after this word? Does this word come after this word? And, and we have what you call variants, not like, not like a virus, okay? But you have what you call variants. You say, well, is this little chunk of this passage, does it belong in this verse or this verse? Because we're the ones who created chapter and verse. And does this section belong here or here? Does this word belong here or here? Was this here? Was this here? And you have these what you call variants, but none of them affect anything related to doctrine, related to the essential teaching, the identity of Jesus, the miracles. None of that stuff is affected by it. This is remarkable. So what you have would be the same thing as, you know, it started over here. Pastor Joe's got a really bad haircut and it ends over here. Pastor Joe still has a really bad haircut. That's what we see with the New Testament. And there's nothing like that in the ancient world. Remarkable. It's the easiest of the three uh, excuses or the three opportunities, the three. Uh, he's got a little red line there. Okay, good. And uh, it's the easiest of the three to refute, okay? Uh, the next one is, well, these writers, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whoever they were, Paul, you know, Peter, Paul, Mary, Almond, Joy, whoever it is, you know, all these people, they're, look, they're 2000, it's 2,000 years ago. These people are superstitious. These people are naive. These people are smoking too much, you know, magic mushroom or whatever their marijuana was of the day. You know, they're superstitious. They're simple-minded. They're not enlightened, intelligent folks like us. They're, they're lower on the evolutionary brain food chain. Their brains are smaller. They're simple. They're dumber. They're whatever. They're superstitious people. So, you know, what looks like this, they say it's a demon. It's not a demon. The kid wasn't demon-possessed. He had epilepsy. And so the just this, 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 
you know, they're inventing this stuff or they're superstitious. And so they write the person had an evil spirit and all of that. There's a natural explanation for this. They didn't know they were unintelligent and therefore they wrote these things. And so everything to them is a miracle. This also is a fairly weak argument. Because when you actually take the time to read the New Testament, what you discover is that these people were actually quite sober-minded when they wrote. They even acknowledged their own lack of faith and their own skepticism and their own acknowledgement that they don't want to be superstitious. So there's a famous, famous guy in the New Testament. His name starts with T, who's a really good example of this. Thomas. We call him Thomas the Doubter. So you have Jesus risen from the dead. Well, wouldn't these, wouldn't these superstitious, naive-minded people, yay, Jesus rose from the dead. No, not Thomas. In fact, most of them, no. They're saying no. You've got a small group of women who are saying, and women's testimony, by, by the way, in the first century was zero validity. And yet you have recorded in the New Testament, you've got women who discover the empty tomb of Jesus. And the men don't believe it, especially Thomas. And we call him a doubter. Well, I mean, it's not unreasonable what he's asking for. He's saying, if Jesus has risen from the dead, I want to put my hands, I want to see him, and I want to put my finger in his hands and in his side. And then I'll know he's risen from the dead. Remember last week? Extraordinary claims, says Carl Sagan. That'll be on the quiz tomorrow. Require extraordinary evidence. Well, Thomas might agree. And so you, you see this, you see the lack of faith shown by these people. You see conversations that Jesus is having with the apostles. And what does he do? He criticizes them for their lack of faith. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And he says this several times. Not only that, we have a very sober guy who wrote two major books in the New Testament. Uh, and one's a sequel to the other. He's a very interesting guy. His name starts with L. Luke, not Skywalker. And Luke, what was Luke as a, a, his, his vocation, his profession? He's a doctor. And Luke is a detailed, detailed writer. In fact, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we, because he's so good at detail, we're able to confirm these little minute, insignificant little things. We're able to look into archaeology, into the ancient writers, and we're able to dovetail those things with things that Dr. Luke has written. And we call him Dr. Luke because he's so incredibly detailed. So when you actually read the accounts, you say, well, these people don't write like naive little foolish people. They seem to write in a very sober-minded fashion. And they even show their own unbelief and their own doubt and their own unwillingness to accept things that are pretty, pretty significant. So it's a, it's a kind of a weak argument to say, well, they're a bunch of naive people, especially when you have scores and scores of these miraculous things going on in the New Testament. 
There's dozens and dozens of them. So in every single account, you have to find a way to say, oh, well, this is their naivete. This is their superstitious mind that is writing this. And you can't. You can't go through every single one and find a, a reason to say that. And even some of these miracles are done in front of the enemies of the movement. The enemies of Christ, the enemies of the church, these things are done in front of them and they have every opportunity to say, no, this man who was healed by Jesus who was blind, no, 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 this is trickery, this is sorcery, he's not even blind. You're, you're turning this into a miracle in uh, John chapter uh, uh, 9, John chapter 10. Well, no, the enemies of, of the movement, uh, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the early believers, they've got no choice but to acknowledge that this guy was healed. The, what Their problem is, what are we going to do with this surging popularity of this Jesus? Because we do not want to lose control of the situation here. He's going to surge in popularity by what he apparently did. We all know this man. This man was blind, and now he's able to see. We don't know how he did it, but we know that he did it. You see, so this excuse, well, the writers are superstitious, it's a very weak one. And the last one, I've already put a, a line through it, is that, well, what we're reading in the New Testament, it's an intentional deception. So the, this is intentionally, this is an intentionally concocted story why would they do this? Why would they invent this? Well, again, this is about the church and the church wanting power, the church wanting to control people. After all, you've got Christianity legalized by Constantine and you've got the, the you know, the, the sort of official uh, sanctioning of the New Testament. And, you know, these people sat around, at least we're told by the view, they sat around, they said, well, this book's in the New Testament and this book's in the New Testament, but we'll reject this book and we'll reject this book. If you've ever seen the movie The Da Vinci Code or read the book The Da Vinci Code, that's the kind of, of theory. You know, this is all an intentional conspiracy. It's the greatest hoax uh, uh, foisted on the minds of men is the New Testament. This is the greatest hoax. This is the greatest conspiracy. This is the biggest lie that's ever been told that billions of people have believed over the past 2,000 years. And it's a lie. It's an intentional lie. If you talk to the Jewish apologists today, uh, the people, the Jewish people who look at Christians and say, you Christians are deceivers and you are deceived. And their mission is to try and get Christians out of the church. Uh, there's one really popular one on the Internet, and, and he would not like me uh, because I come from a Jewish background. I'm trying to get people to believe in Jesus. He's a rabbi, and he'll try and get me to stop believing in Jesus. And he'll say this New Testament that you have is an in, in, intentional deception created by the church to control people, to get their money, to build an empire. That's what this is. It is an intentional concoction. It is a lie. This also very, very, very weak argument. Because what you have, and again, even Tacitus, the, the, the historian, says it. What you have for these early Christians is what? A life of happiness and peace and red roses? What do you have for these early Christians? Persecution. Like they took these people and they made them into live torches. 
They burned them alive on crosses and turned them into torches. They threw them into the circus with the animals and had them slaughtered in front of people for entertainment because of their faith. They were persecuted viciously, especially in the first couple of centuries of Christianity until Constantine legalized the thing across the Roman Empire. It was the worst moment for Christianity when he did that. But even before Constantine, these people were persecuted with vicious uh, uh, and uh, uh, intense violence. Even the Apostle Paul is a persecutor of the early believers before his conversion. He has people stoned to death. He drags them into prison. He has them executed. This is the type of thing that the early believers experienced and were to believe that they experienced this and lied about the whole thing. You ever know anybody who died for a lie? People will die for what they believe is true. It may be false, but they'll die for it, right? We see this all the time. But you're telling me that all these people, they got together, they whipped up this story, and then they said, we're we're all going to die for this lie. And none of them cracked. And none of them said, oh, no, 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 it's not true, it's not true. Don't kill me. (laughs) No, folks, they absolutely, with all their hearts, believed that it was true. Now, they may have been wrong, but they absolutely believed it was true. You can't doubt their sincerity. And then they write things in the New Testament that says, I, that say, I tell you the truth, I am not lying. We did not invent cleverly devised tales. You have the Apostle Paul saying, if Christ has not been raised, we are liars. So, you, so we're to believe that we've got a liar lying about his own lie and then dying for it? They're addressing the very charge in their own writings. So to say this and to use this as an excuse, all three of these excuses are weak. They all fail when you scrutinize them, when you think about them. And the only alternative that you have then, when you look into the pages of the New Testament, the only alternative that you have that's intelligent, that's reasonable, if you're thinking is the response of faith. That's the only other option that you have. And you please come to me if you know another way around this. If you can figure out a way to deny all of this and you've got a good argument, please come to me and tell me. Please, on the internet, I beg you, come and tell me. Message me and tell me because you're going to lose. It comes down to the same three arguments all the time. And that's why the only response that makes sense, if you're thinking, and a lot of times we think that if you're a Christian, you have to remove your brain, you have to leave it out in the foyer, and then you come into church with no brain. No, if you're thinking, then your response, the reasonable response is the response of faith. Why is Good Friday so good? Why do I love Good Friday? Because behind the event that requires little to no faith, you even have Tacitus talking about it. Jesus died. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and Tiberius Caesar. You even have Tacitus talking about it. It requires little to no faith to believe that there was a Jesus and to believe that he died on a cross at the hands, in part at least, of Pontius Pilate under the leadership of Tiberius Caesar. It requires little to no faith behind that event 
the event that we acknowledge today, the event of death that all of us relate to in some shape or form, that all of us will walk through. Behind that event, you have something wonderful going on. You have in the trials of Jesus and in the crucifixion of Jesus, all of which are very easily believable. They don't have any miraculous things in them. People are not going to say, well, you know, none of that happened and we don't know how Jesus got on the cross. I mean, as long as it's not supernatural and miraculous, people say, well, so what? Who cares? Yeah, he was tried. He was crucified. So what? Who cares? Has no effect on my life. Behind that, behind those events are, is something wonderful. First of all, when you look at the trials of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and you actually do the digging and you read up on it and you see, well, how were they supposed to put a person on trial? What was the process? What was the procedure? Because you read these things in the Gospels, they go by very quickly. But as you, if you dig, you will, you will look and you'll scratch your head and you'll say that it never should have happened. It, he never should have made it as far as the cross. It never should have happened. So what Tacitus writes, it never really should have happened because the illegalities in those trials, and you see Jesus passed off from one person, from one group to another, to another, to another, and he finally ends up in the courtyard of Pontius Pilate who finally reluctantly tries to wash his hands of the thing, and then he has him crucified in a somewhat reluctant fashion. If you read up on it, you'll look and you'll say, it doesn't make any sense because there are so many illegalities, there's so many irregularities, there's so many discrepancies with those trials. It should have never happened, and yet it does. It's as if there is a hand behind Jesus' back that's pushing him to the cross. It's like, there's an inv- it's like he can't get around it, like there's an invisible hand. That's the only way I can describe it. That's pushing him no matter what happens. Well, the witnesses' testimony didn't line up. They're in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. They can't even line up their own testimony to accuse him. They're meeting in the, in the night. It's illegal. They can't do this. They can't do that. And yet they're breaking all the rules, and it still keeps moving forward. It's as if there's an invisible force in some way that's pushing Jesus to this cross. It's really weird. And, and the historians look and they say, I mean, no it, no, it didn't happen. It couldn't have happened because there's all these illegalities. That's why it's, it's a concocted story. These people who wrote this, they don't think that we do our homework. They don't think that we can fact check them. This is a concocted story because there's all these illegalities. Folks, we're talking about something that happened. It was transmitted so fast. If that was the case... Where are people in the first century saying that this was all a lie? Again, nowhere. The sheer strangeness of it is what makes it so believable. But even beyond this, in the trials and the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday, there are clues that spark faith, that ignite faith. If you watch for them, You can see them. You have to watch for them very closely as if God has left his little thumbprint behind for us to see that he is trying to get people to believe through the events of even just Good Friday. Uh, One example of this, I call it the most important misquote. It's probably the most important misquote in the entire Bible. 
And what happens is that you'll see it. You'll see Matthew and Mark. And what they do is they record a misquote of a statement that Jesus made in John. So you'll recall that at the trial, they say in front of Caiaphas, the high priest, this man claimed to, he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Do you remember this? And they say, this man said this, and they're in front of Caiaphas, and they're saying, look, he's a, he's a sorcerer, he's a magician, and this is illegal, and we want him punished because of this, because he said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Folks, Matthew and Mark tell us that, but you won't find this statement in Matthew, and you won't find it in Mark. You'll only find it in one place, the original statement that Jesus made is in John chapter 2. And indeed, he said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Go back at John 2 and look at it. But what's he talking about when he's talking about that? Yeah, he's talking about his own body, his own death, and his own resurrection. Well, it's pretty easy for you to predict your death. Right? That's easy. Uh, but to predict, uh, I will raise it three days later? Uh, okay, that's, uh, that's pretty specific. <laughs> and the, the enemies of, of, the, of the movement, the enemies of Christ, what did they do? Even when Jesus is up on the cross, they say, look, he said he would, he would destroy the, t- the temple and raise it up in three days. Even when, they, even when he's buried, they, they, they make sure that they have a guard at the tomb. Why? Because on several occasions, Jesus made this prediction that he would rise from the dead three days later. Not only in John 2, but it's amazing that you've got Matthew and Mark mis- recording a misquote of a statement that's not even made by them. This has all the earmarks of a clue that what Jesus originally said, he originally said. He really did say it. It definitely shows that he predicted his own death and his own, more importantly, his own resurrection it's just a little clue but a really important clue because it attests to the reality the the truth of the text then when you look at the crucifixion itself you see several prophetic images from the old testament several of them one after the other very very quickly going in front of your eyes and the authors of the new testament pick up on some of this but what's most interesting is what they don't pick up on what they don't tell us to look at, what they don't tell us to read. So in Luke chapter 22, uh, we see an example of this. And uh, I'm just going to flip here in my own uh, uh, paper Bible. In Luke chapter 22 and verse uh, 37, uh, we see this quote that, that uh, is out of Isaiah chapter 53. So uh, um, this is Jesus speaking. He says to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. This is as he's moving to the cross. And here Luke throws this quote in and he says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is out of Isaiah 53. This is a clue. Dr. Luke is telling us, go look at Isaiah chapter 53. 
It's significant. And so we have a clue, a tip-off to go and look. And he says, uh, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment, Jesus says there. It's just a little clue. But when you go back, of course, and you look at the chapter, and you look at Isaiah 53 and you read it, you see a remarkable description of what looks an awful lot like Jesus when you read the chapter, and even the, the Jewish rabbis of today will say this, but they'll find a way and they'll say, well, no, it's not referring to Jesus. It's Isaiah. He's talking to himself or he's talking about Israel or whatever. But when you go back and you follow the clue that Luke leaves us, you kind of scratch your head. You say, wow, that looks an awful lot like Jesus hundreds of years before. John does this in, in uh, rapid succession in uh, John chapter. Chapter 19, and you see in the in this detail of the crucifixion, um, we see John give us a tip. He gives us a little clue. John chapter 19, verse 24, as they have Jesus's undergarment, we're told they're gambling, casting lots to see who will get it. It's a rather grotesque scene as they're about to, to crucify him. And, uh, and we were, we're told a description of this in verse 24. Let's not tear it. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And John gives us a clue. He says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is a citation out of Psalm 22 written a thousand years earlier. It's a clue. You go back and you read that psalm. You follow the clue. And if you read that psalm, you are going to scratch your head and say, my goodness, this looks an awful lot like Jesus. This looks like what Jesus went through on the cross. It's remarkable how you see the imagery used there. It's written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. John continues, verse 36, and he, he, he gives us clues again. And after, uh, when Jesus is crucified, they, they take a spear and they pierce his side. Uh, they see this blood and this water that comes out. We'll get into that in a moment as we close here. And then John tells us, he says, they didn't break his legs. They had a custom back then. If they wanted to hasten the death of a crucified person, they would take a, uh, like, almost like a baseball bat and they would break the legs of the victim. Sorry to be grotesque. I know it's difficult to imagine, but they would do that to hasten the death of the victim. They, would, they, would, they couldn't breathe anymore if they did that. And so they would do that to these victims, but they did not do it to Jesus. John says, this is a clue. This is the Passover lamb. And one of the rules about the Passover lamb out of the book of Exodus, and by the way, the Passover, Jewish Passover starts tonight, coincidentally, on Good Friday. One of the rules about the Passover lamb was that you could not break the bones of the Passover lamb. As they would prepare for the Passover celebration, you were not allowed to break its bones. And John says, see, they're not breaking Jesus's bones. Why? This is a fulfillment of the prophetic image. He is our Passover lamb. This is a clue. A another clue that he says, uh, uh, they will look on them who they have pierced. This is out of Zechariah, the minor prophet, chapter 12, verse 10. 
And John says it there. It's a clue. Go back there and look there. You know who they're talking about? You know who Zechariah is talking about? He's talking about God. As if to say, it's as if John is saying that God is on that cross and they will look on me who they have pierced. He's trying to say that it is God who is on that cross. It is God who has died for our sins. He is our Passover lamb. These are all clues. But these are, this is where the clues cease. But it, that's why I say it's what they don't say. It's what they don't record that makes this even more eye-opening and that can spark faith. In, uh, in Good Friday, we have this amazing uh, statement that Jesus makes. To me, it's the statement that all of us relate to. Uh, and it's so real and so vivid, it's kind of confusing in a way as well for people. But Jesus says something in the Aramaic language. Do you remember what it was? And we all relate to it. When we walk through death, maybe with a loved one, we feel this way. When we go through difficult, difficult moments, we feel this way. When, when we pray for things and they don't happen, we feel this way. When our faith is seemingly going down the drain, we feel this way. What's the statement that Jesus made? Yes, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says on that cross and it's a it's a really uh, uh, the statement is so thought provoking because people scratch their heads and they say, well, if Jesus was God, how could how could he be forsaken? How can God forsake himself? You know, I've had arguments with people who've said that and they, they don't understand that God exists as the father and the son and the Holy Spirit it's one God, one essence, but three persons they don't understand that and then they look and they say well how could jesus have been forsaken by god like it doesn't make any sense how could he say this and when you when you look at the first verse of psalm 22 remember john told us go take a look at the psalm he didn't even say when jesus makes this statement my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the Aramaic language? Nobody, no gospel writer tells us this was to fulfill Psalm 22, verse 1. Go look there. The only person who tells us to look is John, and he tells us with reference to the gambling of the undergarment as to which soldier would obtain it. That's it. But when you read the psalm, the first verse of the psalm is exactly what Jesus said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a coincidence. What Jesus is doing, and rabbis would do this all the time, if they wanted people to, to look at a psalm or to understand that he was teaching about a psalm in the Old Testament, they would quote from the first verse of the psalm. And here's Jesus on a cross in the last hours of his life, and he utters the first verse of this 22nd psalm. When you read the psalm, again, one writer tells us, look there, we see the, the gambling for the undergarment is in the psalm. Okay, but when you read the psalm, it's what they don't see that's mind-boggling. And I would challenge you, it's a long psalm, to take the time to read it on this Good Friday, maybe read it alone. You will have a vivid, vivid picture 
of what Jesus went through on that cross. Originally, this is David writing, and this is David writing to a song. And he's, he's singing this to music, and he's in a real state of, like, depression. I mean, it's a dark, dark psalm. And he describes how he feels, and he uses all this imagery. And when you look at the imagery, you say, my goodness, this looks suspiciously like Jesus on the cross. The remarkable thing to me about this, the most remarkable, and there are several of them, but for the sake of time, I'm just going just gonna to mention one to you. It's in actually verse 14 of Psalm 22. And this is what the writer originally says, what David originally says. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Whoa, that's a vivid, vivid imagery how he's feeling there. But when you look at the crucifixion and when you look specifically, I mean, some say even the bones out of joint, that several of Jesus' bones, although not broken, would have been pulled out of joint by a crucifixion. They say that that's fairly uh, predictable in a crucifixion and by the way we have now a couple of specimens of ankle bones with nails through them you can look them up on the internet of crucified victims quite a vicious vicious way uh, to 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 die so uh, to say nothing of the bones out of joint this business with this heart here turning to wax it has melted away within me Folks, it, it, it still boggles my mind when I look at it because you have John, and only John sees this or at least records it. And what John does in John 19 is he observes the, the spear going into Jesus' side. And you see that they, they pierce him because they want to make sure that he is dead. They, they do not, uh, therefore, uh, break his legs because they put this spear in, and that seems to satisfy these Roman soldiers in terms of uh, testifying that, indeed, Jesus is dead. And only John says it. It brings a sudden flow of blood and water. And John seems to find this odd. He says he knows that he tells the truth. The man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. Believe what? What does he see that's so remarkable, so strange? I don't even think he knows what it is. He, then he goes on about, uh, you know, not one of his bones will be broken. Okay, that's the clue from Exodus. They will look on one whom they have pierced. That's the clue, clue from Zechariah. But he misses or does not know about what we just read from Psalm 22. What medical science, modern medical science, has determined from looking at the cross of Jesus and from trying to put together how Jesus actually would have died on a cross. This has been done several times. The most famous article is from the Journal of the American Medical Association, 1986. This is not a Christian journal. Uh, I've published this, or not published it, but put it on our website. Last year's Good Friday message, you're going to find it there as an attachment. You can read it. It's like 15 pages long. 
And you have these, these doctors who say, okay, uh, this is how Jesus would have died given what we're reading in the Gospels. And they come to a conclusion with, the, with this spear going in the side, and they say this is proof positive from a medical standpoint that Jesus was indeed completely dead on that cross. There can be no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's what we would expect to see if a crucified victim were, were jabbed with a spear like that. You can read the article for yourself. I'm not exaggerating at all. Now, another study has gone even further, and they say that the sequence, get this, the sequence of blood and then water is a bit odd. They say typically what you would see is the reverse. Now, what John calls water, it's a little more complicated than that. It looks like water, but it's, it has to do with fluid around the heart and so on. But they say that the sequence is odd. That he doesn't say water and then blood. He says blood and water. And they say that the, the, there's one explanation for that sequence, blood and then water. Again, you can go and read the studies for yourself. They say, well, you'd have a person who would die of asphyxia, normal cause of death from crucifixion, amongst hypovolemic shock and losing all of this blood. They would die of asphyxia. So, yes, that's how they would die. But. If you wanted to see that sequence of blood and then water, the heart of the victim has to rupture inside of his chest in order for you to see that response. Excuse me? So, uh, what? This is out of Psalm 22. My heart is like wax. It has melted away within me. John, how's John supposed to know this? He doesn't know medical science. Like, he's the, this is the first century. But he knows what he saw, and he wrote it down. And then you look at the psalm, and you see this imagery. Uh, folks, it, it's kind of uh, uncanny, that, that type of coincidence. And especially when you read through the whole psalm, you say, my word, this is eerily describing the death of Jesus on the cross. You see, you have a natural event, an event that nobody really denies anymore. And yet behind the scenes, you see all of these things that can inspire faith. And the biggest application for this, and Simon, you can come and play as we finish up today. And if someone wants to go and bring the, um, bring the kids in and bring Jenny in, we're all going to have communion together, okay? So if someone wants to just go open the door and bring them in, everybody knows each other in here. We're going to have a little kind of family time and have communion together here on Good Friday. But the, the great message that we have here, beyond all of this information and beyond all of this, you know, all these little details because some, it, for some, it's just like, this is, okay, really interesting, but it doesn't really help me all that much. But let me tell you what does help. Let me tell you what you can take home. Let me tell you what you can use to, to bless your soul on this Good Friday if you're struggling. Or if, you, if you're, you're, you're praying through something and you feel like God is just seemingly gone from my life, or you're trying to share your faith with people who don't have any, you read through this Psalm 22, and you get to a, a beautiful uh, verse, a place where the author has kind of reached a, a, a conclusion to his thoughts. 
And he says this after all the suffering that he describes in graphic, graphic uh, imagery. He says in verse 24, for he, speaking of God, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Even Jesus crying out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? You read the psalm and the truth of the psalm is no, he has not. No, he has not left you. No, he has not forsaken you. And maybe that's where you are today. And you say, I feel this way. I relate so much to what Jesus said. Let me tell you the truth of the psalm. God is still there. He's still there with you. He's still walking with you even though you may not feel him, even though you may not sense his presence. He's still there walking with you even in the darkest places, even in those deep, deep valleys. He's right there. And you can rebuild that sense of faith by digging into the scripture, by using the mind that God gave you to rebuild the truth of your faith today and you can share it with others so i'm just going to take a moment to to pray and then i want to read something to you uh, as we observe communion together it's the oldest reference of communion that we have in the world that is not from the mind or the writing of a christian father we thank you today for the glorious truth of good friday and I pray, Lord, for, uh, for, for the audience here, for the online folks, in the name of Jesus, that faith above all things, faith would rise in the hearts of people. And people would grow in their walk with you, in their relationship with you. God, that we would hold on through every moment of difficulty, every storm, every challenge. We would hold on. Lord, our kids would see us hold on our our co-workers our communities uh, our fellow students would see us hold on to faith in christ even in difficult moments we pray way back in the uh, late first century you have a letter from a, a governor by the name of pliny and he's writing in around 112 so early second century He's trying to figure out what to do with a group of people called Christians. And uh, he's, he's asking for advice. And he writes to the emperor at the time, Trajan. And he's trying to figure out what to do with them. And uh, so he interrogates these Christians. And uh, this is what he, he observes about them. And this is, this is as old, almost as old as the New Testament, not written by a Christian. They maintained, however, that the, the amount of their fault or error had been this, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble, uh, sorry, to assemble before daylight and recite by turns a form of words to Christ as a God and that they bound themselves with an oath not for any crime but uh, not to commit 
at theft or adultery or robbery, not to break their word and not to deny a deposit when demanded. And after this was done, their custom was to depart and to meet again to take food, but ordinary and harmless food. It's the earliest reference to what we're about to do. Uh, communion. It's almost 2,000 years old. And here you have this man writing, what am I going to do with these Christians? This is what they say about themselves. Folks, when we observe these, these moments and we, we partake of these emblems on Good Friday, we are doing something very, very significant. We're commemorating. We're remembering not only the death of Jesus, but also his resurrection and even his second coming. And by doing this, we proclaim it. We hold to a, a, a tradition, a custom, but even more than that, a command of Jesus to do this in remembrance of him. So when you do it today, you're following a long, long line generations and generations of people have done this and some of them paid the price with their lives for doing it so when we take of these emblems we got to remember wow this is this is while it's just a symbol it's very very powerful very powerful so i'd invite you to uh, peel back the top layer i'll do that with you You'll find a, you'll figure out how to do that there. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit tight. And I'm going to read to you from uh, Luke's gospel here. Uh, on our Wednesday night Bible study, we looked at this and uh, it was really quite neat, the, the things that we were learning about the Last Supper. Uh, but you see there that Jesus describes what we're about to do here. And you have this meal that they were observing. This is a meal that Jewish people around the world will observe tonight and some tomorrow night as well. And it's a, it's a Passover meal. It commemorates the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jews escaping from slavery under Pharaoh. You'll recall that they would take the, the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and they would put it over the doorposts of their homes. And when the angel of death came, as Moses said, this is going to come, Pharaoh, that firstborn are going to, to die. And uh, those with the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes will live. This is what the, the, the ceremony is all about. And Jesus, at this moment with the disciples, he adds this new meaning to it. And so we see in Luke chapter 22, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this not only to remember you got out of Egypt, but do this also in remembrance of me. Where is he going? Well, I'm going to die on a cross for your sin. I'm going to be your Passover lamb. Remember you came out of Egypt, but remember as well you came out of your sin because of what I'm going to do for you on the cross. Let us partake together.
If you go ahead and peel back the second layer there, you'll see just a little tiny bit of juice. And Jesus continued there in the Passover meal. And he says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And we learned this was called the cup of redemption. That God would redeem his people out of bondage. And, he, and Jesus says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Moses had the old covenant with the people, the covenant of obedience, the covenant of the law. But this here is the new covenant in my blood. You're also doing this not only to remember God's faithfulness to you in the past, but God's faithfulness to you in the new covenant in me. Let us partake of the juice together. Father, we thank you. We praise you today. Uh, help us, Lord, to, to uh, remember to be impacted. We're so thankful for, for Easter 2022. We're so thankful, Lord, that uh, no matter what circumstances we may face, no matter what challenges we may face, the same truth is still true. You came, you died, you rose again. And Lord, we just embrace that reality and that fact today. We just hold on to the cross and the empty tomb. And Lord, uh, I pray you would just encourage people and you would fill people with awe and with reverence toward you because of what you have done for us. Amen. Simon, if you would go ahead and play that song. It's a beautiful song. First time that I think any of us have heard it today. But if you'd stand with me, and Simon's going to close with that song as me. And uh, you're free to stay as long as you want afterward. Uh, there'll be another church that's coming, but I don't think they'll be here for a couple of hours. So you could stay as long as you want and be able to talk with one another. And just keep your masks on because it's a small room, but you can do that. And, uh, you know, have a little bit of community, a little bit of fellowship together. Remember as well tomorrow to be on time. We're going to have a really fun time together on Easter Saturday. Wetland is available at the back. If you have something you want to give in the offering, we have envelopes there in the back row. We have the machine there as well, and she'll be able to tend to you if you want to buy tickets. God bless you. Simon, would you lead us this morning?
you died and rose again as me. You stood in my place. I'm a miracle of grace, and I'm free. I'm a miracle of grace and I 